Hello, welcome to Bible Talk. Today we're in the book of Colossians as we journey through the New Testament this year, uh, celebrating the year of the apostles and looking at the letters of the New Testament. And we come to Colossians, which is one of the so-called prison epistles, prison letters that Paul wrote while in prison uh, to the church. And so um, Paul is writing with Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So obviously they had a collaboration still possible, even though uh, Paul was limited in his capacities because of his situation. But Colossians is, a, is, a, is like all the text of the Bible, is a wonderful document and gives us great truth about God, about Christ, about ourselves. And so we're going to dive right in. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, everyone with me here in this Bible talk. And I pray, Lord, that uh, your presence is more important than anyone. And we and I pray that you would lead us to your truth and to your life-changing uh, insights from the book of Colossians so that it can have its intended effect on us uh, as it did on the first readers of the book. So thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Uh, as I said, uh, Paul wrote this probably 62-ish A.D., somewhere in there. That's about where we are in timeline. And interestingly, we find from uh, the text itself that Paul had never personally visited the Colossians. Um, in fact, verse uh, 7, I believe it is, in chapter 1, it says... Uh, well, let me just read verse 6 and 7. Uh, the faith and love, starting with 5, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. Since for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Epaphras, who was a companion of Paul and a protege was a, a, a man that probably, it's not, it's not irresponsible to speculate that Paul had seen come to Christ in Ephesus uh, during his ministry there. Um, that, that's uh, the speculation of some. And Epaphras then, uh, as, as Colossae is in Asia Minor there, not terribly far from Ephesus, and the speculation is that Epaphras, based on Paul's reference to him being the one who gave Paul information about uh, the church in Colossae, that Epaphras had been there and planted the church. And so Paul, being uh, the apostle and the spiritual mentor of Epaphras, uh, just as he would have been of Timothy uh, and uh, Titus and others, is that they went out and bore fruit in their ministry and while Paul may have been their spiritual father, then he was the believers at Colossae, their spiritual grandfather, in effect. 
And so Paul, of course, had great interest in the church and was uh, uh, greatly concerned about them and was concerned to write this letter. We don't, it's not specifically said why Paul wrote the letter, but I think we have a clue in chapter 2 when we get to verses um, 7 and 8 of chapter 2. Uh, actually, it's just verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. And based on some information throughout the book and the things that he talks about, for instance, down at the end of chapter 2, he says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you about what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, a celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are the shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So the idea is that maybe there was some Judaizing going on with these Gentile Christians in Colossae. In other words, uh, you know, the people that was a common issue in the New Testament that Paul was constantly resisting was people came along and told non-Jewish people who had accepted Jesus as their Savior and Messiah uh, that, that they had to, all of a sudden, uh, to really be Christians, they had to become Jewish, as it were. In other words, they had to start following the traditions of Moses and, and take on the ceremonial laws of the Jewish people in order to be right with God. And Paul, of course, uh, resisted that intensely. And we see intimation of that in these verses in verse 16 and following in chapter 2 that we just read. Before that, we read from verse 8 when he says, uh, no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Um, another thing we know that was common that church historians tell us and that uh, is, is evident in New Testament scholarship and study is that at the same time of Paul and the apostles in the New Testament, that in the, in the Greco-Roman world, that uh, especially in the, in the Greco side of things, in the Greece, Grecian influence, was, um, was Gnosticism. In other words, the Gnosticism was basically the idea that, that matter is evil, spirit is good. And so therefore, anything that they denied the incarnation of Jesus as God, for example, because if he had truly taken on flesh, then God would have been somehow evil or evil would have been implied. The, the reality being that, uh, that, that uh, they, they denied then that Jesus couldn't have become uh, God. He couldn't have or become flesh because that wouldn't be possible for God because only, only non-material things are, are holy and pure and righteous or whatever. So um, they, they believed in a dualistic universe where matter was evil, flesh was good. And so their response to material things was either uh, just antinomianism or complete asceticism. In other words, the idea they they either said, well, it doesn't matter, flesh is evil anyway, so just do whatever you want to, you know. Uh, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So anything goes. There's no such sin thing as sin uh, in that regard. You just do what you want to because it doesn't matter because matters, the body and all material things are evil anyway. 
The, the other side of it was to say that, well, we need to, to bring that material evil side of us under control. So we're going to be, uh, we're going to separate ourselves from anything material. We're going to deprive ourselves and we're going to be really uh, uh, disciplined and uh, not, uh, not do anything uh, with the body that would be uh, fulfilling the cravings of the body, so to speak. So there were these, uh, there were these uh, empty philosophies, I think, that Paul would have been talking about there. And I think, I think it's interesting, you know, some people have made the observation because there are no new false teachings. Some people have actually made the observation that m the modern manifestation of Gnosticism is, is the Christian science, uh, that you get down into the, the essential teachings of Christian science and it, it's under a different title, a different name, but that you see, uh, you see some of the basic principles that are Gnostic. So that, that's fascinating. But anyway, all, all that's to say that, that the book of Colossians was written by Paul. Uh, there were obviously some threats to the truth about Jesus that were, were happening to the Colossian believers, and Paul was writing to counter that and, and with regard to that, he was making sure that they understood uh, that it wasn't Christ plus anything. It was Jesus and Jesus alone that provided all we needed from God, that we couldn't do anything to add to that in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And we didn't need to add Jesus plus this, or plus this philosophy, or, or plus this ritual, or whatever. It was relying exclusively on Christ alone. And so that's what's led some people to call the book of Colossians a literary portrait of Christ. One of my former uh, teachers uh, called it, Dr. Harold Kuhn called it a literary portrait of Christ. A.T. Robertson, the great Baptist New Testament scholar, uh, called it a full-length portrait of Christ. So uh, we get a clue here as to uh, after Paul finishes the introductory introduction and greeting and initial prayer for the Colossians, then in verse 15 of chapter 1, he says he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, when we see Christ, we see God because he's fully God. The firstborn over all creation. And that word uh, firstborn has many different nuances and applications of meaning um, the, the, uh, it's interesting too, back uh, talking about, uh, the Jehovah witness view of Jesus, their Christology is that Jesus isn't equal with the father. In other words, he's not fully God in the same sense that God is, but he's the, the first born over all creation. And they use this passage to say that he was the first being that God created and so therefore he helped in the participation in the creation of the world and everything else, but he's really not fully God. That, that, that is the same thing that Arius promoted in the second and third centuries in the early Christian church and Athanasius uh, also resisted and gratefully the church rejected that view of Jesus because firstborn here, it, 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 it relates to his ownership of creation. In other words, he's the son of God. And so in that sonship, 
he is he is the rightful heir and owner to everything that is God's as God himself. So there's this multiplicity of layers of relationship within God himself and Jesus as the son to the father within the triune God. Uh, he is the firstborn. He is the rightful heir of all creation. And, and because the firstborn, uh, just like in, in England, you know, where they have a, a monarchy still to this day, you know, uh, Prince Charles was just recently named king when uh, Queen Elizabeth died, his mother, and he'd been 70 odd years since he had been born, but he was their first child of the queen. And therefore, he became the king when her reign ended. Well, that, that was because he was the firstborn. In other words, there are rights and privileges and ownership. Uh, that, that's what's being referred to here. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So in other words, the idea that everything in, in the universe was created by Jesus Christ. Um, it, it, you know, and the Bible says in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, put it together. Um, I think Paul knew, knew what the implications of that were. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And this, this could possibly relate to what part of the empty philosophies and teachings that the church was experiencing there because uh, there, there's, there's not unreasonable speculation that what was happening was that there, there were people coming along and telling the church, oh, uh, there are other authorities spiritually out there and there are other entities spiritually and that uh, you have to uh, somehow recognize them and, and Paul is saying, no, you don't. All of them, even those that actually exist, they exist at his pleasure. Uh, they're all subservient to him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I, I'm always fascinated by that. In him all things hold together. The idea being that uh, the whole universe is maintained by Jesus Christ. Um, that the reason, you know, the laws of nature are not like, like the deists believe, not set in motion and just, well, the, the, you know, we know what time the sun's going to come up and go down, whatever. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the one that has his finger on the pulse of the universe. And the reason it operates with, predictable harmony is because Jesus is the one that's superintending that. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. In other words, he's head over the church. That means he's the source of the church and he's the, the origins of the church. And therefore, he's the one who is in charge of the church. Um, and the firstborn from the dead, meaning again, back to, back to the principle of the firstborn overall uh, uh, creation, is that 
he is the one who has now has control over death because he died and lived to tell about it for humans because he did that in a human body. And so now he controls the destiny of every human so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So in other words, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. In other words, Jesus, Jesus is the one in whom resides all the fullness of God. In other words, he's fully God and fully man. And there's nothing substandard or second rate about Jesus as it comes to God. He is fully God with the Father and with the Spirit. And, and that is sets the tone for the rest of the book. I mean, there's so much more we can talk about here in Colossians, and I don't have time, but I want to go through that particularly. Uh, in the first couple of chapters, he talks about the spiritual principles, and then he goes into the rules for holy living. Uh, since then you have been raised with Christ, chapter 3, verse 1, set your hearts on things above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he talks about how we should, uh, whatever we do and word or do, do all in the name uh, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in other words, we serve Christ. Everything we do is a service of Christ. And, uh, and so, again, he goes through and, and highlights practical applications of what it means to honor Christ in all we do and how Christ is honored above all. Let me, let me lastly mention verse 5. I think it's verse 5 of chapter 2. Uh, actually, verse 3. It says in uh, verse 3 of chapter 2, he's talking about Jesus and he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, nobody else you need to go to to find out information. Not, not that, uh, that we don't learn things from other people, but he's referring here to these uh, other sources of information that are needed in addition to Jesus in order to get the whole truth. No, it's all hidden in Jesus. He is the sum total of knowledge in the universe. So this literary portrait of Jesus glowingly depicts him in all of his greatness. So we thank God for it in the book of Colossians. Lord, thank you. Uh, there's no time in, in the 20 minutes that we have to unpack all the truth about Jesus in the book of Colossians. But I pray that all of us would as we dwell on your word, as we meditate on it. And Lord Jesus, we just praise and adore you and we worship you as fully God and fully man for our sake, as our Redeemer. We don't deserve you, but you deserve us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next time.